This episode of Managed Carecast will discuss subjects related to suicide, suicide ideology, and gun violence. If you or a loved one is in crisis, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-273-8255. Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Gianna Melillo, Associate Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. Gun violence is one of the most prominent public health issues facing America today and accounted for over 43,500 deaths in 2020 alone, the highest number in decades. But a major driver of gun-related deaths in this country that often goes unmentioned is suicide. Research shows having access to a firearm significantly increases the risk of suicide via firearm, and during the pandemic, amid an unprecedented surge in firearm purchases, these purchasers appeared far more likely to have experienced suicidal ideation. To learn more about the intersection between COVID-19, firearm ownership, and suicide, and to mark National Gun Violence Awareness Month, we spoke with Dr. Michael Dionestis, an associate professor at the Rutgers School of Public Health. On this episode of Managed Carecast, Dr. Anestis discusses his most recent research on the paramount importance of safe firearm storage, this epidemic's disproportionate impact on people of color, and future steps needed to help decrease rates of gun-inflicted suicide. Dr. Anestis also serves as the Executive Director of the New Jersey Gun Violence Research Center. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Anestis. To begin, could you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your work and how you got into this field. Yeah, sure. So I'm Mike Anestis. I am an associate professor of urban global public health at Rutgers and the executive director of the New Jersey Gun Violence Research Center. Um, you know, I really, I'm a clinical psychologist by training and a suicidologist, so a suicide researcher, and I have been for um, around 15 years or so. And, and somewhere around uh, five or six years ago, I really started focusing on the role of firearms in suicide and, and that really became the focus of my career. And it's what sort of led me to my current position. I had previously been working as a faculty member at the University of Southern Mississippi uh, and saw the opportunity to work with the Gun Violence Research Center here up at Rutgers um, and, and felt it was an opportunity for me to take the work that I do, which again, predominantly focuses on the role of firearms and suicide um, and move beyond just traditional academic channels. And so I still am very much an active researcher and I seek out my peer-reviewed publications and grants, but I have a very big sort of training mission and communication of science mission and and sort of ways to make sure that the work I do is forward-facing and, and is maybe more likely to impact policy and, and communities than it otherwise would be uh, with the way, you know, academia sort of traditionally sort of confines what we can do. Great. And getting right into it, recently you co-authored a study that looked into suicidal ideation among individuals who did purchase firearms during the COVID pandemic. Can you explain how you carried out this investigation and its main findings? Yeah, sure. And so, you know, the background for this paper, an important thing to consider is that the the previous year saw a surge in firearm purchasing that that well exceeded anything we've ever seen historically. And so even before this purchasing surge, there were more firearms than there are people in the United States. So we were you know, inundated with firearms in a way that's fundamentally different than any other country in the world. And despite this, we saw a dramatic uptick in sales this past year. And so at the very beginning 
or not really the beginning, but not too far off from the beginning of the pandemic as this purchasing surge was becoming clearly a thing. My team and I, along with a colleague, Craig Bryan, uh, who's now at Ohio State, um, we collected a data set of 3,500 uh, U.S. residents matched to census data, so to try to get sort of you know fairly representative and large sample of folks, and we asked them a whole lot of questions. Um, but one of the questions we asked was, you know, and these data were collected in late June, early July, of 2020. We asked, since March of 2020, since the onset of the pandemic, have you purchased a firearm? And what that enabled us to do was to look at three different groups of people, folks who did purchase a firearm during these opening months of the pandemic, folks who are firearm owners but had not purchased during that particular window of time, and then folks who just aren't firearm owners. They didn't purchase during that window. They also didn't purchase before that. Um, or if they did, they didn't currently own firearms. So we've got these three groups of folks, and we wanted to look at them <clears throat> for a couple of reasons. One is that it's a well-established fact or, or well-established finding from research that, that a firearm in the home dramatically increases risk by three to five times uh, of suicide for everybody in that home. Um, so that, that access to firearms predicts suicide death above and beyond all sorts of things like mental illness and suicidal thoughts and substance use and demographics and, and economic struggle, struggles and all sorts of other important things. But we know this to be true, but fortunately for all of us, historically, what firearm ownership doesn't do is it doesn't predict suicidal thoughts. And so historically, if you have a gun owner and a non-gun owner, uh, the fact that you know one owns a firearm and the other doesn't tells you nothing about who's more likely to have suicidal thoughts because they're so equally likely. And so that's great because firearms are so much more deadly than other methods for suicide that it wouldn't be particularly great news if firearm owners were also more sort of prone to suicidal thoughts. So we looked at these three groups of folks, and I want to say there were about five to 600 folks who... Um, had purchased during that period of time, five or 600 folks who had, or no, it was about 200 folks who'd purchased during that period of time, um, around 800 folks who had uh, purchased a firearm at some point, but not during that window. And, and the remainder of the sample were non-firearm owners. And what we found sort of unfortunately and startlingly is that the folks who purchased during those opening months of the pandemic, so during this beginning of the purchasing surge, were far more likely to have had lifetime suicidal thoughts, past year suicidal thoughts, and past month suicidal thoughts, and then were either of the other two groups. And the other two groups didn't differ from one another. So the other two groups function just like they normally do. They're equally likely to have had suicidal thoughts, whereas this group of folks who'd purchased during the surge were far more likely than others. And so to put it in context, about seven out of 10 folks who'd purchased during the surge endorsed having had suicidal thoughts at some point in their life, and one in four reported having had suicidal thoughts just in the past month alone. And so what you've got is a group of folks, unlike most firearm owners, in that they are prone to suicidal thoughts. And we've now introduced the most lethal method for suicide into their home. And it's likely to stay there for a long, long time. I'm not sure if this is beyond the scope of your analyses, but did you find any significant gender, racial, or demographic differences among responses? So yes, we have more data that's actually under review right now, and I'm hoping to be able to say it's in press any moment, but we've also looked at just sort of the, the sort of demographic um, distribution and all sorts of other things that separated folks who purchased during this, this surge. And, and what we found is that actually the folks who purchased during the surge were 
you know, first of all, more likely to already own firearms than other people. So you had a, a, a chunk of folks who are new firearm owners, but also a chunk of folks who are sort of stockpiling weapons. Uh, they're also more likely to endorse plans to purchase more firearms <clears throat> in the next year. So getting up this sense of, of accumulating uh, an arsenal. These folks were <clears throat> more skeptical of the world, more, more sort of sensitive to threat. The world's dangerous. People can't be trusted. They were also uh, more likely to be male, which is true of most firearm owners. Um, and we saw some racial differences, again, as is the case in most firearm samples, uh, you know, they're predominantly white, but you saw a, a, a trend towards both purchasing firearms and planning to purchase firearms amongst black Americans. Um, you saw also more likely to have purchased amongst first responders, amongst essential workers. Um, so people who are maybe on the front lines of the pandemic, and also folks who belong to professions that are just known to um, involve firearm access more often. And what do you think was the main impetus behind these findings? Was it just pandemic-induced stress that drove people to purchase firearms and have these thoughts? So I think it's a mix of things. Honestly, my biggest regret, and anytime you you collect a data set, you get excited about it. And then very soon after you realize, oh, I should have done this differently. And, and my biggest regret is that, you know, we were very good at assessing COVID-related stress. And in fact, the people who were purchasing during the surge definitely endorsed every form of stress related to COVID more so than other folks. So that, that's definitely part of it, right? We were living in an unprecedented sort of time of, of physical ailment and then and, and people were freaked out by it. But there was also a lot going on that we didn't assess. And that's the regret. You know, I don't I didn't have anything in there about the social justice movement. I didn't have anything in there about the presidential election. And, and we know that purchasing surges happen oftentimes during um, presidential elections when there's a sense that Democrats will take power and that might you know, result in legislation that restricts access to firearms. And so there are a lot of things There were supply chain fears. But I think that the thing that has come caught my attention the most. And, and, and again, my, my, my colleague, Craig Bryan, does a lot of work on this too, some without, with me and some without, is this idea of threat sensitivity, this, this sense that people are nervous about the world as it is, and they feel a need to keep themselves and their loved ones safe. And for one reason or another, they come to believe a firearm is a tool that will provide them with that sense of safety, that ability to protect themselves, protect others, whether that's at home or away from home. And they're anxious about that in general, not walking around, not, you know, if you close your eyes, picture an anxious person, you see someone fidgeting and they're nervous and hard to die. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about it, not an anxiety that permeates all aspects of life, but just this general sense of the world is threatening. And I'm aware of that. And I don't trust that things are just going to work out. And I don't trust that others are looking out for me. I need to take this in my own hands. The world is dangerous and it's up to me to do something about it. And it's that sense in sort of unprecedented turmoil, um, or if not unprecedented, very rare levels of turmoil that I think prompted a lot of people to purchase firearms and to consider purchasing more. An additional study that was published in March in JAMA Network Open found, I mean, it underscored the issue of adolescent access to loaded guns in their homes. And then another study found that an increased risk of firearm injuries in young children and firearm injuries inflicted by young children during the first few months of the pandemic when compared with the pre-COVID study period. Can you elaborate on the importance of secure firearm storage, especially in households where children or adolescents are present? And just tagging onto that, I mean, other data have shown that rates of suicide are increasing in this young adult population. So maybe could you touch on that a little bit as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, first in speaking about secure storage or safe storage, however we're going to frame it, it's important to be clear about my definition because, you know, the most common reason for owning a firearm is protection at home. And when you ask someone who owns that reason their firearm stored safely, they'll often say yes, because they have a firearm loaded on the ready in case someone comes in as sort of a, a bad actor who's armed and ready to harm them, right? So it's important to make sure that when, I, when I'm talking about safe storage, and I think when you're talking about safe storage, we mean the same thing, which is firearm that's stored uh, unloaded separate from ammunition in a secure location, like a gun safe or a lock box, and ideally with a locking device, like a trigger lock or a cable lock in place as well. And then a secure storage also involves a plan for storing firearms legally and temporarily away from home during times of stress, right? So there's a lot that goes into it. And it's extremely important. And, and you mentioned a couple of domains where it's important. One is when kids are in the home. And you know, they talk about increased rates of, of firearm injury amongst children during the opening months of the pandemic. Well, kids were home more, so there's more opportunity. There were also more firearms in homes, which is more opportunity. And some of these firearms amongst new firearm owners, who maybe are less familiar with safe storage, there's another opportunity for problematic outcomes, right? Um, and then again, with, with adolescents, again, too, they were home more often, right? And they were stressed. We've seen all sorts of reports about increased uh, suicidal uh, ideation or attempts amongst adolescents during the past year. Now, most of those weren't with firearms, but nonetheless, when you put a firearm in the home and the, the adolescent is aware of it, and there's compelling data that adolescents are far more aware of how to access firearms in the home than their parents think they are, then you introduce risk. And, and so the idea of safe storage is, it's important. It, safe storage does not eliminate the risk of problematic outcomes to zero, but few things do that, right? But it's important to note that an unsecured firearm, a firearm that's sort of loaded, a star firearm that's easily accessible, introduces risk for a lot of things. So unintentional shootings, like a child walking in and finding the firearm and unintentionally shooting themselves or someone else. There's lethal domestic violence. So the, the likelihood of fatality in domestic violence incidents goes up five times when there's a firearm in the home, particularly if it's readily accessible, right? So it, you know, storing a firearm safely doesn't uh, eliminate domestic violence, but it lowers the odds that the firearm's used in it and that someone dies. Um, suicide, obviously the focus of my work and, and a lot of our conversation, the risk is dramatically higher of firearms in the home and particularly if it's stored unsafely. And then the variable people often don't think about is theft. Um, and when firearms are not secured, they're more readily stolen. And when they're stolen, they're then often trafficked into urban spaces where they are then used in crimes. And, and in those situations, what you end up having is unsecured firearms resulting in death that disproportionately impacts communities of color uh, across the United States. And so there's just a range of real problems that come from unsecured firearms. And secure storage doesn't, again, completely get rid of the risk, but it dramatically lowers the odds of any of those outcomes happening. And that's the goal of a lot of my work, which is to say, look, I know firearms are, are here and they're here to stay. And there's a lot of them. And so you can't focus all your energy on trying to prevent things at point of sale. And you can't focus all your energy on pretending the firearms are going to go away. You have to say, well, how can we lower the risk in an environment where risk is certain to exist to some extent? What can we do to get buy-in from the community of firearm owners to change their behavior in a simple way that doesn't threaten their rights, but, but dramatically increases uh, their safety and that of their loved ones. So do you think once things begin to open up again and more children and adolescents are leaving the home, we should expect to see these rates decrease? You know, it's hard to say, right? Because again, you have more firearms in the home than you've had before. And, and I think that, yes, people will leave the home, but that doesn't mean stress will go down, right? So I think should you see fewer unintentional deaths amongst children when children are around firearms less often? Yes, you should. Um, 
that isn't the bulk of the firearm injuries though, right? So when I think about what's going to happen over time, again, I often ground myself in thinking about things through the lens of suicide prevention. And so a lot of folks, myself included, and I probably shouldn't have, but I definitely was in this camp of folks who anticipated a, uh, an uptick in suicide deaths during the pandemic, you know, isolation and stress and economic turmoil. But the reason I say I probably shouldn't have expected that is because there's a long history showing that during big events, good or bad, that we all sort of feel connected to, suicide rates go down. So 9-11 would be a good example of that, right? None of us think fondly on 9-11, but you know what happened? A lot fewer suicide deaths. We were all connected to something bigger, right? And so suicide rates actually went down a little bit in the past year is what it seems to be the case. But eventually that could change over time. And those firearms are still going to be in the home as we you know, hopefully return to some sort of normalcy, right? And so what you might see is a little bit of a lagged effect. So firearms remain in the home. And as long as that firearms in the home, the risk for all sorts of those outcomes that I mentioned, they, they continue to exist. And if, if the circumstances related to other aspects of people's lives change, then your risk for those problematic outcomes can go up. So again, I, I worry about suicide rates going up at some point in the future, even as you think, well, they should go down because COVID's getting better. Well, lots of other things aren't. And we're feel, we might feel more scattered, actually. Um, but yes, in terms of children with unintentional shootings, yeah, I'd, I'd be hopeful that as we get kids into school all the time and back into after-school activities and people aren't sitting around the home as much that just by the sheer fact that they're not physically around the firearm as much, the odds of them getting hurt by it go down. And you kind of just answered my next question, but throughout the pandemic, it seems like one silver lining in the U.S. was the relative absence of high-profile mass shootings for a period of time. But when you look at the data, it actually seemed that 2020 had at least 43,500 gun deaths and 610 mass shootings. I mean, again, you kind of just touched on this in your last answer, but is there anything you want to add as to whether or not you expect similar trends in the coming year? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. And I think there's more to say on that. It's, it's an important question. And so, you know, two thoughts on mass shootings. Like, you know, part of it depends on your definition you're using, and that can impact, you know, number of people shot versus number of people who are, who are, killed, right? And we think about these high profile mass shootings, those actually represent an extraordinarily small percentage of gun deaths in this country. It doesn't make them unimportant, doesn't mean we should talk about them or that we should talk about them less, but it means that, you know, oftentimes our conversations around gun violence are these reactive uh, conversations in response to these high profile events that are just fundamentally different than most day-to-day gun violence and most gun violence overall in the country. So depending on the definition, maybe those went up, maybe those went down, maybe the coverage changed because we had other things to talk about. I don't know. But what we do know for sure is the number of gun deaths went up and particularly homicide and particularly in our urban spaces and particularly in our communities of color. And so I, I think that that is explained by a number of things that that largely focus on you know, during the pandemic, there was less access to a lot of things that you know, are protective against gun violence. So the ability, like I was saying earlier, to go to after school programs, to be in school, first of all, right? Um, the types of things that the, have folks have access to connections, to resources that lower the odds of gun violence. Also things like community-based gun violence and eruption programs. It's harder during times of social distancing to implement the entirety of programs like that, right? So there are some hiccups in our ability to use our best available tools so as we come out of the pandemic, again, it's hard to say, are gun, gun violence rates going to go down? Gosh, I, I, don't, I don't know that we really can confidently say that's the case. I think that you could see more of those high-profile mass shootings just because, again, people congregate more, right? So when we think about the high-profile events, they tend to be at 
schools or at movie theaters or grocery stores or churches, places people weren't going so often, right? And so because there's more guns in circulation and because there are more people now going to these spaces, you would think the odds of those events happening would go up. In terms of the day-to-day gun violence, man, that's impacted by so much more than just COVID that it's hard to say that that's the pivot point one way or the other, right? I, I gave some examples of, of some problems that came about because of the pandemic that, that sort of increased risk, but that's not the entirety, like you were saying earlier, of, of what explains not only gun purchasing, but firearm usage during the past year. Turning the conversation again to suicide, I feel like, and I could be wrong, but I feel maybe one common goal among gun owners and activists alike could be suicide prevention. But as you said, data show access to firearms significantly increases the chances of an individual committing suicide via firearm. And recently, you also conducted research on the impact of specific messengers of firearm safety for certain populations for suicide prevention. Can you outline the results of that study? Yeah, sure. So in that study, we were using a a different sample collected the same way. So still a very large several thousand person sample matched to census demographics. And we gave them a list of 14 potential sources who could talk about safe firearm storage for suicide prevention. We used the same list um, used in a study led by uh, Cassandra Caprasi of of Johns Hopkins that she published a couple of years earlier. And we basically just asked people to rank order these sources in terms of how credible they are to talk about safe firearm storage to prevent suicide. We also asked them about that for unintentional shootings and and homicide, and, and the results were almost identical. But what we found across our sample and across pretty much every single group, including gun owners versus non-gun owners, or different type, different subgroups of firearm owners, black, white, military, civilian. Um, those who secure, you know, store safely, those who don't, men, women, however you're going to break it down. What you typically saw was law enforcement and military veterans and active duty service members as being ranked as highly credible. And then celebrities, uh, casual acquaintances and medical professionals being ranked as less credible. And, And so what that does is speak to the idea that who we think the messenger should be isn't always necessarily true um and that we need to be thinking about the idea that look we have this tool which is safe storage um that could likely be extremely beneficial to prevent suicide but people are using it and, and that's a messaging problem uh not necessarily a problem with the tool itself and so if we want to get better at messaging we have to make sure that we're not just packaging the right message which is something else we're studying how to do but that we're we're taking that message and delivering it in the right medium with the right messenger and I'll say that we have other data coming soon. My my one of my doctoral students, Ali Bond, just defended her thesis, and and we'll be looking to publish this stuff soon. But um, she did what's called a latent class analysis. So that sort of takes a whole bunch of variables and says, are there different groups of folks? And she did this for firearm owners and said, you know, firearm owners aren't just one community. It's not just one identity. There's all sorts of firearm owners out there. And and so she had this huge sample and actually a couple of huge samples. And, and found yet, yeah, you've got, you know, you know, let's say around four or five different subgroups of firearm owners, depending on which sample we're using. And they don't all want to hear from the same folks, but we did a couple of things differently. One is that we added some new sources. And the other is that we randomized the order that the answers appeared. So one concern I had is that physicians were ranked really low in ours, but they also listed close to the bottom of the list. And maybe people were just dragging that name over because it was lower and they were tired of reading all the sources. So with, in this study, People saw that the sources in random order. We don't know who they, where they saw. 
And in this case, physicians were rated much higher than they had been. Uh, law enforcement continued to be one of the most popular. But what was interesting to me is that suicide prevention organizations like the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and American Association of Suicidology were rated very highly, very positively at messengers. But firearm lobbyists and firearm manufacturers and firearm dealers. So we specifically listed the NRA and the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Um, we talked about gun retailers, gun manufacturers. Um, those were all rated very poorly, um, which surprised the heck out of me. And again, there was some variability from sample to sample. But what this tells us is A, gun owners aren't one group. B, you need to figure out who is the most effective person to speak to the group you're trying to reach. And, and the third issue is, is don't make assumptions about who that's going to be, because there's a good chance you're going to be wrong on that. And it's more important to make sure we're meeting the needs of the community we're trying to reach than to meet the needs of our own assumptions. Yeah, so my next question was going to be, are you aware of any communities or municipalities that are taking this advice of the trusted messenger and using it to disseminate this information? So, you know, it's it's new data, right? So I think there are plenty of organizations out there thinking about this. We're certainly not the only group thinking about it. I don't know that I can say any group is taking our specific findings, which are also just quite new, right? And, and using them to implement things. But I've had a lot of interesting conversations with folks, um, both in the federal gov- government and state government, um, in DOD. We have several, you know, upcoming funded studies trying to, to look at how to implement these types of things. And so I think people are taking it seriously. You can look at some of the ongoing things like in family fire that are going and where they've done focus groups and they've, they've tried their best to tailor the message around sort of the needs of their, their audiences. So I, I think that there are people out there thinking about this, but we're just way behind on this, right? I mean, there, there hasn't been as much gun violence research that there should have been over the past generation. And so we're asking a lot of basic questions pretty rapidly and having to try to catch up. And, and so I think it's gonna be a little while before you see, you know, first of all, that we're confident that our answers are correct. Cause even, even in my last answer, I showed you all in our second sample, we found some findings that were a little bit different than in the one that you were asking me about. So we need consistency and confidence. And then we need better dissemination so people know about it. And then we need time to take that information that people now know about and implement it into existing or new systems to sort of really be able to saturate um, the population with the message. Like you just said, in the past, national funding, at least for research on gun violence, was restricted by the legislation called the Dickey Amendment. But in December of 2019, a spending package allowed for funds to be allocated to the NIH and CDC for the specific purpose of conducting this research. And then in September of 2020, the CDC awarded $8 million to research groups across the country to investigate these matters on gun violence prevention. So in your opinion, what impact will this new funding and the government's kind of reversal of its stance have on research in this field? So it's a vital step. And, and it's in conjunction with a lot of private funding, whether that's from folks like Arnold Ventures and the National Collaborative on Gun Violence Research or Affirm, the American Foundation for Firearm Injury Reduction Medicine, or even folks like my own team at the New Jersey Gun Violence Research Center, where we're funding projects specifically on this, right? But having federal dollars is a big deal. And so what you had is, is you know, um, millions of dollars for NIH and millions of dollars for, for CDC. And that's great. And I know a lot of researchers who've received some of this funding already. And I know a lot of us who are, um, you know, have applications under review with NIH right now for this year's 
a pot of money on this. And that's great. And that will prompt a couple of things. One is better research, right? You can do better research when you have the funding to pull it off. And two is it'll pull more people into the field, right? People pursue lines of research that are fundable and, and universities hire researchers who do fundable research. And so if, if gun violence prevention becomes fundable research, then it becomes you know something people are likely to pursue and it becomes a marketable interest for people who are trying to get jobs uh, uh, at universities. And so, so that's positive. Undoubtedly, what I'd say though, is that man, does it need to be dramatically increased? And so yes, that the, the funding exists where it didn't before. And the funding isn't nothing, which is vital. And, and so some great research will come out of that. But if you look at the level of funding for gun violence relative to level of funding for other sort of similar or even far less common causes of death, it, it's, it's extraordinarily low. Um, it is a, it, nowhere close to being funded at the level to which it is impacting the country. And, and so my hope is that this first and second round of research that comes out of this funding. And it takes a little while for funded grants to yield known findings for a variety of reasons. It just, it slows the process down a little bit. But my hope is that people see the value of this and, and we continue a trend of the federal government and other sources, but the federal government investing heavily in this enormous public health crisis that's facing our country. In addition to increased funding and research, are there any other steps that you feel should be taken to decrease any future increases in rates of gun-inflicted suicide or gun violence in general? Sure. Um, I think there are there are plenty of things, and, and there are also plenty of unknowns, simply because, like I was saying earlier, we're, we're still asking basic questions, right? Um, I think you need to see far more community partnerships, um, and those partnerships need to involve gun owners, um, maybe gun lobbyists these at times, but not necessarily. Gun owners are different than that, right? So you need to find ways to reach the actual communities at greatest risk. And I think having a coordinated sort of public-private effort to get the message across effectively is what's vital, right? So the, the science does the job of helping us better understand where is risk and why is risk there and who's it greatest for and what can we do? From there, we have to have a an effort. And again, this is part of why I went to the GBRC. So instead of just studying things, my my brain is often saying, well, what can I do with these findings to actually tangibly do some good in the world? And we need that, right? And so that involves thinking about how can we identify the communities we're not reaching? How can we get folks to better understand uh, the risk posed by firearm access? And, and that things like safe storage aren't a threat to the Second Amendment. They're not a gun grab. It's, it's simply public health, right? Um, we need a concerted effort to do that. And we've done this before, right? We've done this with drunk driving. I talk to people a lot about, I think, a great parallel for what we need in this country for at least for safe storage and suicide prevention or for anything coming from safe storage. Is I, I think about how I used to always sneeze into my hand and now I sneeze into my elbow. And I definitely, definitely remember a time when I saw posters and messages about changing and I was sort of resistant for one reason or another. I don't remember when I started sneezing in my elbow, but I know I do now. And I know that in the rare occasion where I don't, I immediately regret it. So there wasn't some eureka moment and there wasn't someone preaching what I had to do. It's just at some point it became common to sort of commonplace enough that I saw it happening and it, I rationalized, oh yeah, that is a smart thing. That is what I should do. And we need that, right? We need to figure out how can we get this message like we did with sneezing to your elbow, like we did with with drunk driving, like folks are trying to do with masks, although it's politicized like firearms, that's hard to do, but how can you get folks to make 
simple behavior changes that have dramatic impacts on levels of risk for dangerous outcomes, right? And that's what we need to get at. And, and there are lots of ways we can do that. And when I say public, private, think about also how the film industry can impact this. I was watching uh, Mayor of Easttown, and I won't give spoilers for your listeners, but something that isn't a spoiler that I noticed quite frequently is that the main character was a law enforcement officer. Every time she went to get her firearm, she had a key and she had to unlock uh, a lockbox of sorts and get her firearm out. And every time she was done with it, she put it back in and she locked it. She didn't make a big deal about it. It's just something we saw happening, right? And so you can think about how can we inundate our country with images of this happening? Because it's not something people do very often. It feels foreign and unusual. And if you don't believe that unsafe storage is even unsafe, then why would you do it? And so you need to get the idea that this, this is normal. We have normalized this behavior by having people see folks they relate to doing this behavior repeatedly, and they start to internalize it, just like I started sneezing into my elbow. Well, those are all the questions I had prepared, but is there anything we didn't touch on you'd like to include, or do you have any final closing thoughts you'd like to share? Sure. I, you know, I think that there probably are a couple of things that are worth talking about. One of the things is that it's probably worth us taking a moment to talk about, and I, I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but talking about reframing the conversation on gun violence to make sure people understand who the communities are that are most impacted by this. And, and so making sure people understand how much of gun violence is suicide and how horrifically disproportionately impacted uh, our, our Black communities are uh, on interpersonal gun violence. So that'd be one thing. And the other thing that's probably worth talking about sort of where we're going next on this is we did a clinical trial in lethal means counseling and had a really great you know, success amongst fire money members, the Mississippi National Guard. But where I want to go with that is take that same tool and train other folks in the community to have successful conversations outside of the healthcare system. So I'm talking about training bartenders. I'm talking about training faith leaders and teachers and people who see and speak to people, barbers, you know, folks who could, again, normalize the conversation and, and, and speak with folks in a context because the folks who are most at risk often aren't coming to see our healthcare professionals. And some of our data says they're not the people to do this message anyways, right? So it might be worth talking about those couple of things. Sure, go right ahead. One of the things I think it's really important for us as a nation to do to address gun violence is to make sure that our national conversations reflect the true nature of gun violence in this country. If, if people have a very skewed perception of what gun violence is, then they're unlikely to throw all their muscle behind effective solutions for the actual problem. And so, you know, the true nature of gun violence in America is sort of two things. One is suicide, which accounts for almost two out of every three gun deaths in this country, right? But certainly is not brought up in the conversation about gun violence, particularly often. And the other is the really horrific racial disparities in gun violence uh, in terms of interpersonal gun violence. And so this day-to-day -day, uh, homicide by firearm rate is just dramatically focused on our Black population. And yet when you hear about gun deaths in this country, it's often these high-profile, often very white mass shootings. And again, those are tragedies that are deserving of our attention and conversation and it's something we need to prevent, of course, right? But what's tragic isn't that we're talking about those, it's that we're not talking about suicide, it's that we're not talking about black and brown communities um, just being devastated by gun violence. And, and because of that, we don't allocate our resources appropriately. We don't talk about effective solutions appropriately. Again, like the, the point of sale policies that work on who can and cannot buy a firearm, those are useful 
but most people who die by suicide use in a firearm have had the firearm in their home for 10, 11 years. And, and most of the homicides happening in our cities are involved illicitly acquired firearms, right? And so you need to have policy solutions that address the actual problems. Um, and if we don't talk about our, our sort of problem of gun violence appropriately, that's not what's gonna happen. The second thing I think that we should focus on a little bit more than we have or a new direction to go involves how to get more people to feel confident and equipped to have effective conversations about safe firearm storage and about the risks posed by firearms in the home. And so my team recently conducted a project called Project Safeguard that was funded by the Military Suicide Research Consortium where we randomized people to, to get a single session of what's called lethal means counseling. And these were firemony members of the Mississippi National Guard, or they got lethal means counseling plus cable locks for their personal firearms, or they got a control condition, or they got control on the cable locks. And, and what we found is that both lethal means counseling and the provision of cable locks resulted in substantial increases in safe storage over time across their three and six month appointments. So this one single conversation in the case of lethal means uh, counseling, so 10, 15 minutes, prompted a lot of change amongst a population that was highly skeptical of what we're talking about. You know, we used a, an approach called motivational interviewing that kept us from arguing. I think that it was a big deal how we approached the conversation. There are a lot of ways to do it wrong. But when I think about that trial, I, I focus on what should we do next and how can this actually, in a scalable way, impact our country's sort of vulnerability to suicide and a variety of other um, outcomes. And, and I think that involves taking this approach scaling it down a little bit so it's easier to train people and training people outside of our healthcare system. So I, I think that one of the things our country needs to do next is think about how can we equip folks who talk to folks, folks who are trusted and already embedded in the community to talk about this so that they're comfortable doing it and that firearm owners hear it coming from them instead of coming from me. So I think about faith leaders. I think about um, barbers. I think about coaches. I think about bartenders. I think about anybody who isn't a healthcare provider but who's often trusted, who often talks to people about things that make them feel vulnerable and who could, if given the right tool, be not responsible for the healthcare of that individual and suicide prevention overall, but could be a really important component of a broader strategy to get people to understand risk and what they can do to protect themselves in a way that still maintains their autonomy and their rights and their identity, but, but again, just dramatically lowers the odds of suicide. And, and so that's a direction I'm hoping we go next. Um, we're a far you know, cry from having that <laughs> accomplished, but I think there's momentum and, and I'm hoping that's where we go. Thank you so much again for taking time to speak with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. To learn more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.